What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Jan Lieberman is managing partner at Delphi Digital. He focuses on the quantitative side of the business, including predictive on-chain metrics and automated market makers. Jan previously served as a dividend forecasting analyst at Bloomberg LP. In this conversation, we discuss liquidity pools, decentralized finance, market makers, on-chain metrics, token economics, value accrual, and whether Jan thinks there will be another alt season or not. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is Athletic Greens. They're an all-in-one daily drink that supports better health and peak performance. I'm a convert. I've been drinking this daily, and I love it. Even with a balanced diet, which by the way, I don't have, I eat McDonald's and Domino's every Saturday. But even if you got a balanced diet, it's still difficult to cover all of your nutritional bases. That's where Athletic Greens will help. Their daily drink is like nutritional insurance for your body that's delivered straight to your door. They've developed a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. Athletic Greens is a greens powder that's engineered to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. Their daily drink improves your everyday performance by addressing the four pillars of health, energy, recovery, gut health, and immune support. It's packed with all kinds of good stuff, and it's an easy all-in-one solution to help your body meet its nutritional needs. Their highly absorbable powder is diet-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, or Domino's and McDonald's like me. So get the all-in-one drink with less than one gram of sugar that tastes great. So whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address your gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. They got me. I drink it daily, and it doesn't matter what else you eat. I always know I'm going to get all of the nutrition and vegetables and good stuff that I need in my body. So you can simply visit athleticgreens.com pomp to claim my special offer today and get a free D3 K2 dropper with your first purchase. That's more than a year's supply of vitamin D as added value. So head on over to athleticgreens.com pomp. One more time athleticgreens.com slash pomp to claim the special offer and get the free dropper with your first purchase. It's worth trying. Take my word for it. Also, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my personal opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Jan. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. Jan's here. What's up, man? How's it going? Appreciate you having me on. Of course. Uh, Jan works at uh, Delphi Digital, where I sit on the board, which means automatically he has to be smart. Duh. (laughs) Uh, But uh, let's go through your background first, and uh, then we can talk about Delphi and what you guys did there. Yeah. So after college, I worked in, in traditional finance. So initially, it was primarily equity research where you're publishing um, reports on, on a subset of coverage of companies that you have under, uh, under you. And so the idea is you're, you're constantly trying to produce actionable insights, understand where the, the space is going and, and um, understand how the companies fit in within the space and, and as well as a strong understanding of just financial markets and um, financial modeling and, and kind of how that all comes together. And then from there, that was at Bloomberg. And then afterwards, I was working uh, at Deutsche Bank, where I was in uh, leverage finance uh, CRM. And so the idea there is we're loaning, um, providing debt to highly leveraged companies and, and really understanding, you know, these are the riskiest companies. And realistically, can they actually pay this back? And, and so you kind of start to see really ridiculous situations where you're, you know, you're providing loans in situations where you possibly shouldn't be, but there's you know, a lot of underlying relationships there that kind of have to be respected. And so... Um, that, that was kind of my, my traditional career. And 
we, I, I fell down the crypto rabbit hole, uh, I'd say very beginning of 2017, I obviously heard about Bitcoin before and, and just kind of didn't really put the time in to, to research it, unfortunately. And then so got into the space in early 2017, just as a, as a casual investor. And um, just as you know, as most people tell you, you kind of just fall down the rabbit hole and, and it starts to take up more and more of your time. And, and um, so I was working with uh, three of my colleagues before, uh, at the time, this was Anil, uh, Medio, and, and Kevin. And so we just noticed that we were spending more and more of our time trying to understand the space. And on one end, you wanted to do it because there were opportunities to make a lot of money quickly. And, and there's no better motivator than that sometimes. And so we, we really just spent all of our time on this. And um, after a while, we, we actually really appreciated what was going on and, and thought that this had a lot of potential. And, and we really wanted to be a part of it professionally more than just casual investors. And so at that point, we started to think about how we could enter the space professionally. And so some of the ways you think about working with a specific project, but that's tough just because you don't really, at the time, you know, you're learning so much in this space so quickly that, you know, what you thought you knew a few months ago is totally different than what you knew now. And so we kind of started to realize that the, the space was iterating very quickly and it didn't really make sense to commit to one project, but we wanted to be abreast of everything and really as involved as possible. And so um, from there, we, we thought about what, how can we leverage our existing skill set in the best way possible to kind of monetize it and, and create a business out of it. And so we thought, the, the, at the time, the idea was institutional money is going to move in. And, and so everyone realized now that that process happens a little bit, uh, a little bit more slowly than expected. And, um, and there, are, there are hurdles in the way. And so some of the hurdles are custody, regulatory, and, and you can kind of, kind of go down the laundry list. But one of them was understanding how value can accrue in the space, why I should invest. Like I need to be able to read uh, an investment thesis that I can easily digest and understand and then bring to my board or, or to my CIO and, and, and you know, take it to the next step. And so we thought based on what we were doing at the time, based on our interests, we could provide that caliber of research and analysis into, into this space. And we didn't really see it um, existing in, in any real credible way. I think, you know, some people were starting to do it, but we thought there was a lot of, a lot of uh, opportunity here. And so we started Delphi in August of 2018 and we were kind of uh, building behind closed doors for a while, trying to figure out um, how we're really going to uh, build the business, what, what was really necessary. And so um, we figured it would be a subscription business. And the idea was we would provide recurring research and uh, that, that would be one way to really scale the businesses over time. You'd build a subscriber base and, and that's kind of how, how you build that business. And part of it was, so we, we bootstrapped the company. We know we, we started, we realized, all right, let's set aside some money. We know how much we, we have and, until, you know, we start really running low on, on funds. And so we, we sought out with that and realized that, you know, the subscription model takes some time to build up and, and we knew that going into it. But one of the ways we kind of were able to almost bootstrap our own liquidity issues was through our consulting business. And so the consulting business initially started as funds came, used us for due diligence. And so they would almost treat us as an outsourced due diligence team where they would say, all right, we are interested in this sector, come back with investments from an equity perspective, from a token perspective and why. And so those were larger one ticket items that were great for providing capital to business, but those the way that that business scales is with price, whereas the subscription business scales with users. And so we needed both to kind of happen in tandem. And so we, we kind of leveraged the, the consulting business to subsidize the research. And then we met you, I believe it was in, in late 2018. Um, and, and through you and, and meeting Tom at, at 51%. And then we, we merged with him at the beginning of February. And that was kind of how this relationship was born. Um, since then, the company has, has really grown. We, we've expanded just recently. We're up to, to 10 employees now. So that, that's, it's been great to see. And, and I think the way that it's kind of evolved has been we've been able to iterate on the recurring bit a bit more in the sense that we understand what users want, what they don't want. And at the same time, the space changes so quickly that we can't be very rigid with our structure. We, we have to be a bit more nimble there. And on the consulting end, what's happened is we had, so initially our skill set was understanding where to invest. And then from there, um, through our research and, and just our ability to, to look into as many tokens as possible and, and really understand why some are successful, why they're not, 
and and kind of going from there, the consulting business evolved from just looking into uh, projects to invest to actually designing the token structures for these projects. And that's been that's been great because we've been able to really contribute to the space in in a in a meaningful and tangible way, and and kind of re reuse as much of the IP that we've built up from the research side, from the consulting side to to help design these projects. And then just recently, we announced that we were having a ventures arm as well, and we thought that that was the next natural process in our evolution. To um, now, we can not only we have the research side, but we we can only we can. Um, design these tokens for projects and also provide them with capital assistance and actually become uh, you know a, a, a real value provider in the space beyond just any kind of research or analysis and, and really helping projects and, and investing and, and becoming more than just a capital provider to the project but actually helping them with with design and, and, and dashboards and, and kind of figuring out in what ways we can really be a value add to them. And so what does Delphi look like today in terms of you've got the research arm, you've got the consulting arm, you've got the ventures. What are the products that are in that research arm? Kind of what does people come to you for consulting for? And then capital is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. So the research um, we have on a monthly basis, we provide an in-depth uh, token report. And the goal there is to provide something as actionable as possible for our clients. Um, it's not always something that we're overly bullish on, but there are situations where we can be bearish, but we're not the way in which we are typically bearish is not in the sense of we're not going to tell you that a project that everyone knows is bad is bad and go into a lot of detail about it. That's just useless. So we'll kind of in those situations, we'll typically be a bit against the grain where we think that there's a misunderstanding between what people think is actually going to happen relative to what is actually happening. And so um, again, that's something that we, we think is actionable, but so the research side, we have those types of reports. Um, we have a lot more short form content. We've realized that we want to be high touch with our clients, but still maintaining um, a, a level of quality with the research. So it's always like finding that balance where we're making sure we're not um, bombarding you with, with too much, but that everything we are sending over is, has been filtered. Like we, we have our internal process that, you know, when a report is done, we, we go through a, a system of checks to make sure that everything is correct. And, and, Obviously, there are opinions where, there, where, there, where it's not necessarily going to be correct with its opinion, but as long as it's fact-based and, and the assumptions are, are logical. And so we have um, daily reports that we send out about uh, topics that we think are relevant, thematic reports where we'll dive into a certain sector like DeFi or Oracles and things like that, where we'll break down the major players in the space and then kind of what they're doing. And oftentimes, our ideas really stem from those types of analyses where we're looking at a sector and we see the competitors and then we can quickly tell which should succeed and then kind of the, the reports evolve that way. So there, the idea is to make all of the research and, and the internal process processes as, as efficient as possible. So if we're doing research on something, there's more than just, we can apply it to more than just that report. And so that's kind of where the, the consulting and the venture arms come into play. So for consulting, we're, we'll have, um, we'll help projects that are thinking about launching a token and so we'll build out how they should integrate it, what the distribution schedule should be, how each individual user should function within the ecosystem. And that's kind of where we think our bread and butter really is, is when you think about these, these token structures is understanding it's not just, so if you think about what tokens were in 2017, they started as a method of raising capital. And that's what they were. It was an easy way to get around regulations to raise a bunch of money and, 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 which, and you have no requirements. It's not equity that you're, you're bound by. It's, it's just free money. Then as, the, as that period slowed down, it got to, all right, well, now we kind of have to make these things have value somehow. So let's figure out how to tinker and change some things to, make, to actually have the value accrue as the project grows. And now we're at the phase where good projects are leveraging the token in a way that allows them to advance faster than they would have had they not used the token. And so that's kind of where we really come into play and, and what we've been trying to help projects with as much as possible. It's, it's either bootstrapping adoption or bootstrapping some kind of incentive structure where you can bring users to your platform and reward them for being early and being active, but in a way that can organic, so the, the, you have these rewards that are basically token-based and, and the idea is that over time, as those rewards kind of diminish, the natural functionality of the project starts to take over. And it's kind of the same thing as, as Bitcoin, just to a, a, like a different level in the sense that you have the block rewards are a subsidy. And over time, the fee market is supposed to develop to offset the subsidy. And, and that's how the, the system can 
um, operate organically. And so that's the same logic that we basically apply to a lot of these um, projects that we, we help out with. And then <clears throat> what we've kind of had the luxury of doing recently is now certain projects that will help design, we can also invest in, and it's just a really great way for us to become, you know, one with the project at, at, a, at a really early level to, to help them along the path. And it provides a great source of deal flow for us and, and really understanding, you know, if it's, it's tough to think of a situation where somebody can understand an investment better than we can at the time, because we're the ones who designed it. And so it's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of benefit there that we kind of are looking forward to using as well. Makes a ton of sense. Um, everyone wants to know about DeFi. Uh, they see all kinds of crazy things on Twitter. Uh, you probably understand it better than most. What is DeFi and what's happening over the last you know, 60 days in, in the DeFi market? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So DeFi is basically a way, it's, it's trying to replicate services in financial markets um, without the intermediary that's taking the rent or, 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 or creating like some, some level of, uh, it's, it's or like the centralized entity that's removing transparency. And so you have these issues that, that are kind of, of the similar ethos as Bitcoin. It's, it's all under that idea. It's just more specific, more targeted. And so what's great is these aren't necessarily competing with Bitcoin. You know, these aren't, these DeFi projects aren't going to become stores of value. Their value is a function of the amount of fees and productive um, value they can provide. So what you're starting to actually see some kind of fundamental way to, to think about these things. And, and DeFi has, has been around for quite some time. It's just, it hasn't really taken off until recently. So, and, and it's, it was it exists in 2018 2019 and and over time it's just become kind of more complex in terms of what people are building so initially it was a lot of borrowing and lending and so the idea was i have this money i can post as collateral and i take a massively over collateralized loan and now i have this capital that i can do things with and if you think about like the, the the smart contracts necessary to do something like that they're a bit more simple because there's not a lot of interaction it's the, the main interaction is provide collateral withdraw other asset, and now you're out of the system. So as the development of, of these systems has kind of grown, the use cases have evolved with them. And so what we've seen recently um, was, it was a combination of things. So, you know, after the, the large sell-off in March, everything kind of bounced back. And that's when you really saw DeFi start to, to blow up a lot. And it was a combination of things. So on one end, you had several DeFi projects that were either launching um, providing new products, uh, V2s, updates, and, and trying to basically optimize their structure. And at the same time, um, and, and this side is a bit more anecdotal, where um, you had some institutions come into the space that were basically um, almost suppressing Bitcoin volatility. So they were, they were coming in and, and their whole goal was to, to provide yields. So they were, they were exercising covered call strategies where they would you know, hold spot, sell, sell calls, and um, they would just create a yield that way. And, and they were really agnostic to the price of Bitcoin, but more so just trying to generate a yield. And so what that would do is that would flood the market with a lot of calls. And at the same time, um, you'd have some market neutral desks or others that would basically buy those calls on the cheap and then sell spot to, to kind of offset that, to create that hedge. And, and so that kind of really dampened Bitcoin volatility where we saw Bitcoin was really flat from, you know, uh, end of April or like May until mid to late June. And during that time, we also saw DeFi start to pick up. And so it was, it was a really interesting combination of the two where now you're starting to like Bitcoin holders are, are, are you know, a lot of them trade leverage and, and, and use options. And, and so when Bitcoin is just bouncing between 92 and 96 or 97 for a month and a half, they, they're losing their mind. And so at the same time, they're seeing DeFi as gaining 100% a week and a bunch of these assets. And so their interests start to pour over as well. And so you started to see a lot more um, attention focused on the DeFi space because that's where the returns were. And to an extent, you can think of it, it's like there, you know, some people think of it as a, as a bubble, but realistically, if you think about the size of DeFi right now, it's still less than Ripple or XRP. And so like, it's not a bubble in the same way that we saw 2017 where everything was running. And, and so you had like, you know, billions and billions of, of artificial value created here. It's a very small set of, of a handful of names. And that's why at the same time, the amount of capital that flows into them causes their price to even to move up even, even further. And so 
what's been useful is it it's, has brought a lot of attention to the space and created um, a lot of a lot of natural, I guess, demand. And so, what some of these DeFi projects are creating are so it's it's intricate yield generating uh, mechanisms. So you had the the whole liquidity mining um, fiasco that that will you know only continue, but but all, like continue to improve. And so initially, liquidity mining is basically I need you to, I want you to provide liquidity for this project and, and, or, or basically post your assets and, and generate a yield. And normally the yield you'd get was a function of how much people wanted to borrow it. But now it's, we supplement it with our token. And so the token now, you know, users aren't getting 70%, they're getting 1500% or a thousand percent yield on their assets. And so not only- How does that happen? That, I think that's what people are confused by, right? They, they hear a thousand percent yield on something and they're like, this has got to be a scam, right? right? So like explain how like something like that happens and, and then we can talk about like yield farming and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's the, that value is annualized. And the reason it ends up ballooning is you'll have these projects that they'll, let's just say they have a thousand tokens. They'll only distribute, you know, a, a small amount at first. And it's kind of like a leaking faucet where they'll distribute that gradually. And what happens is um, as those tokens get get um, distributed, the the idea is at the same time, they're looking to uh, incorporate ways that those tokens will have value in the future. And so part of those is a function of governance. And then within governance, you can um, structure it such that a certain amount of the fees from the entire protocol go to those tokens. So the way what happens is they start to issue a few tokens, but those tokens start to balloon in price. And their schedule is still to distribute one token a day, you know, but just as a scale, but that token initially started at 30 cents and now it's at 40 bucks. And so the yield has just gone insane from, and like your, the capital you're providing is still the same. And so what happens is a lot of money floods into there because the, you know, these markets want to normalize that yield and say, I'm going to take it. And, and eventually they kind of come down, but for extended periods for weeks at a time, you know, there's people farming with like, four digit yield, which is absurd. And, and obviously that's not going to be sustainable forever, but the idea there in the long run is that the, so the fear is, and, and the kind of the, the way you can differentiate some good from some bad projects with yield farming is okay. Once that yield farming stops, how, what portion of these assets will actually remain with that project and how many will just, you know, opportunistically jump to the next situation where there's the most yield farming. And, it almost makes it tough because projects won't all debut at the same time. So even if you're a project where you have a natural amount of yield that you can generate, the problem is if somebody else launches after you that can then just provide that yield, it's like, even if I like what I'm getting here and, you know, holding all else constant, your project will generate me a higher yield. It still makes sense for me to move my assets somewhere else and, and capture that and then eventually move back. And so that's kind of where the, the yield farming craze is happening, but um, it, it's, it's just understanding, yeah, which projects will do the best job of retaining that capital. And then at the same time, how can they leverage that capital to um, generate actual fees? So not fees that are inflated by the, their just issuance of the token, but from providing a product that's actually useful. And so that's where things kind of get interesting and, and really seeing how this whole um, space will shake out. So my two questions are like, one, how sustainable are some of these organizations? And then two, how many are there, right? I keep hearing people talk about like how much value is locked in DeFi. And then when I go look and I literally can't find how many actual DeFi projects there are. And there seems to be like more and more coming online every day. And so is this a function of where there's like one or two big ones and then there's so many small ones that have a little bit of value locked up, but when you kind of uh, uh, count it all up and, and total it, it ends up being a big number? Or is this something where there's maybe 10, you know, kind of quote unquote winners or leaders in the space uh, and then everything else doesn't matter? Like, how do you think about the market structure, both in terms of uh, sustainability and then also in, in just the aggregate number of things that are actually going on? Yeah, sustainability is, is definitely an interesting one. Um, I, I think some will have slightly more sustainable models. So the good thing is a lot of these projects are also at the, I guess, quote unquote, cutting edge of, of token econ and token structures. And they're also really looking to constantly improve them through a very public governance process, as well as 
um, outsourcing some of that to teams like us where we'll, we'll try and help in, in any way we can. And so um, the sustainability is tough. I, I definitely think there, there is a large level of sustainability because there's, there's the demand to borrow and the demand to, to, to find ways of, of figuring out the most efficient yield. And what like some of these projects will really do is you provide assets and then they can search the market for basically all other yield providing products and optimize there. And so like you'll, I think you'll have a situation where the smartest and, and the kind of the best ones win. A lot of them work in, in tandem and it's actually funny. So the idea is with, with some of these, you can effectively, so let's say I want to take my assets and I place them into this pool to provide liquidity. The way that the value of your, the, your share of the pool is now a token technically. So if I put hundred dollars, like just thinking about it easily, if I put hundred dollars into this thousand dollar pool, um, and now there's a thousand bucks. So I'm technically 10% and we'll just say each token represents, um, a hundred bucks. So there's 10 tokens issued. And the idea is my token represents 10% of the pool. The pool grows as it accrues fees. And so now like this asset that I have, which represents my ownership in the pool is also valuable. Then I can take that asset and basically park it somewhere else. And you kind of get these, 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 uh, interesting loops where, that's where people can really start to blow up yield because you can keep earning yield on the assets that you're borrowing against. And, and so it's, it's an interesting loop. Um, the, the, one of the more interesting things to see is, is a lot of these projects were kind of developed in silo in the sense that we understand what our risks are as a project. We will develop these mechanisms to institute balances in there, but the problem is they can't account for new products that come out and, and create, sources of demand and supply that completely throw their systems out of whack and, and, and makers one of those where they're having a bit of trouble where they have there's because of an, another yield farming project that's rewarding you based on the amount of assets you provide basically a lot of dye gets stuck in compound but so that it creates demand for dye that that isn't really programmed in and then sorry well, the other question was um in, in terms of just like the aggregate number of these, is yeah. this like a winner take most and there's two or three winners? Um, or is there literally, you know, over a thousand DeFi projects and each one has a little bit of capital or assets in it, and that leads to this big DeFi number that everyone uh, continues to kind of point to? No, it's definitely more of the former where you have a lot of these larger projects that are consuming a lot of the liquidity themselves. And if they can differentiate enough there there is a, a world where they can all kind of coexist and so um what's good is they, they are iterating quickly and, and trying to figure out new ways to both incentivize users and efficiently use that capital but what the whole space is effectively doing is is basically trying to replace exposures that or replace products that exist in traditional finance and you know it started with lending and borrowing and now it's the ability to kind of invest in synthetic assets that represent a certain exposure. So you could effectively own an Apple, own Apple stock exposure through using DeFi, but with an Oracle that's pegged to um, the certain amount of assets. And so that's kind of where the space begins to evolve. And, and um, part of the way that some of these projects really uh, benefit is if they can provide, if, if they can suck up enough liquidity, then you as a trader, as a user, you can Buy, like trade in and out of assets through these projects rather than through a centralized exchange. And so the idea is centralized exchanges make a lot of money and they make it on that fee. So if you can now instead transfer the fee to the user providing the liquidity and then, and I, as the user, as the trader can don't have to deal with any KYC. I don't have to register my account. I don't have to, um, um, store my assets with an exchange. I can trade from my wallet effectively and assets never leave my custody. And, and so that's where you're kind of connecting two markets where one, you have individuals with assets that are effectively idle and, and they can't do anything with them with traders that want to buy in and out of, out of positions, but don't want to trust their assets to an exchange or, or um, register for KYC. And, and the difference is it needs to get to the point where it's competitive enough where all right, if, if I'm still getting way better execution on an exchange, I'm just going to use that. But as that kind of gradually, there's like, a, I guess, a, a tipping point where over time, execution will kind of expand and, and really get better on the decentralized side. And, and that's where 
I think you'll continue to start to see, continue to see a lot of growth. And so as part of this, like when the value gets locked, how much of that is net capital inflow versus um, it's kind of this a synthetic uh, asset that got created in the ecosystem, right? And, and an example would just be um, kind of, is the interest uh, compounding on itself from people who are already interested in DeFi or is there a, a pretty significant net capital inflow into the space? And that's what's leading to uh, a growing uh, kind of value locked in DeFi number. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely the uh, the capital flowing into the space, um, and so the the question becomes less so is it is it that, but but to what extent can incentives sustain that growth, and and so that's where the the question is, can we continue to figure out ways to incentivize additional users to bring capital to the space, and so far you know it's been going well, and and um, projects are getting very creative with how they think about the long-term uh, sustainability of, of these models because you do have to initially reward users more than they would normally re receive for bringing their capital here. And the goal is to retain them as, as long as possible. But um, it's it's not so much uh, like they're on the synthetic asset side. The idea there is that a lot of them are, are backed with real assets. And so if I, I'm basically like, so the idea here basically is synthetics where their platform allows users to, I, the two users that exist are the collateral providers and the traders. So I, as a collateral provider, can post my collateral of assets into, into, into their product with, and they use SNX tokens. And the idea there is as a user, um, I can buy, so on one end, if I'm providing the capital, I need to re receive something in return to, to, to do that. And so they receive a fee. And where is this fee coming from? It's coming from traders. And so you have this massive pool of assets that is, is uh, seven and a half times over collateralized. But the idea there is, so these assets sit as the backstop and you can issue synthetic products against them. So if you have $750 um, worth of, of assets locked, you can create $100 worth of synthetic assets. Whatever that asset is, it can, it can base basically anything. All you need is an Oracle to price it. And so now somebody can come in and buy synthetic exposure to, to basically any asset that they can price and, and kind of have economic exposure to something that if they're living in another country, they wouldn't really be able to buy Apple stock or, or anything like that. And so there's, there's a lot of value on the synthetic side, but they're, they're not as much where they're kind of created out of thin air. There's, it's, it's, it's what was probably the, the biggest hurdle for DeFi initially, where because you can't take credit risk against anyone, you, 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 everything has to be over collateralized. And that kind of created a bit of a choke point. But as you create enough, uses for the assets that are borrowed against them um it it, it still makes over collateralizing these positions a worthwhile um uh i guess endeavor for the individuals providing that collateral makes sense and what's the impact on bitcoin and uh ether while this is going on yeah so what's interesting is um you know um DeFi has ran from um April, May, June, it's still into July. And, and what you started to see was Ethereum kind of wake up first at the end of June. And what was the initial thing was um, if you look at the amount of gas spent. So a lot of these DeFi projects are built on, on Ethereum. And the idea there is they can design these mechanisms in any, in any way they want and they borrow the security of Ethereum. And, and by that, if, like the only way to really hack these projects from like a 51% a type level is to actually control the Ethereum network, which is really difficult to do. So um, what happens is a lot as these projects were growing, um, gas, so every time you interact with these contracts, um, you have to pay a gas and, and gas is a function of two costs. One is the price of gas, which is just based on the supply and demand at the time. And then the other is the quantity of gas. And that's the, a function of the complexity of the contract. So a lot of these contracts are pretty complex. And um, when people were yield farming, you'd have to pay, you know, sometimes 50 bucks for a transaction. And the thing is you were getting so much in yield that you didn't care. So everyone was just happily paying these huge gas prices. And that started to kind of really kick off the demand for ETH. And I think it had enough of an effect to start moving price up like that demand for gas because it, it, it was almost you know 50 percent of issuance in terms of you know just trying to think about like how to how to um proportion proportionalize like that the amount of gas um so it definitely had somewhat of an impact on the price and then the narrative kind of started coming about that if you know DeFi really thrives and eth has to thrive as well which 
I agree with to an extent. I, I still think these DeFi projects gain a lot more um, on their own than, than ETH kind of does, but, but ETH by nature should kind of appreciate as well. And so you started to see um, ETH started to really trend up first. And then right afterwards, Bitcoin came. And at the same time, we had spot volume really pick up. And, and, and that's when um, things started to really take off. And as soon as that happened, all of DeFi quickly pulled back. And so you, you started to see where you know, some projects were slightly less sticky. They had some pullbacks. Some projects that were, weren't fully developed yet, they had big pullback. And, and whereas some of the projects that were a bit more ingrained had actual use cases at the time, definitely pulled back, but just not as much. And, and, and the pullback was natural, as you saw, you know, the Bitcoin traders fly in and the same way they come out. And so what's interesting, and, and these cycles have happened over time where alts really do well when Bitcoin's volatility is at all-time lows. And, and that's just because of boredom and, and, and the search for returns, basically. And so I don't think we've had a time, though, where there have been this many alts that actually had real fundamental value or, or, or actual cash flows associated with them. So we did see you know, Bitcoin take off, alts pull back, but we, they didn't really fall as much as they normally would relative to kind of um, previous scenarios. And so we've we actually started to see some of the ones that have adoption and, and some um, use case grow. I think that you know, Bitcoin and DeFi can grow in tandem because in, in reality, DeFi is, is so small compared to Bitcoin, it really doesn't matter as much. And then if you think about, you know, the metrics for Bitcoin, a lot of the ones we like to look at are, aside from the normal ones, just um, looking at the distribution of, of the, the, uh, the holder base and kind of like what the characteristics of, of supply and demand really are right now. And so you're seeing, you know, the, the amount of Bitcoin that's moved in the past year being at all-time lows. So that's you know a lot of Bitcoin that's just sitting idle. Um, one of the ways we like to look at um, the level of weak hands is, so if you track volatility of Bitcoin relative to the amount of the, to the percentage of its supply that's moved within the past three months. And so the idea is, if uh, what you'd see before was when there was a big spike in volatility, whether it was up or down, you would see a spike in the percentage of supply that's moving in the past three months. And that just means, you know, more people are, are, are reacting to the price change. And what we've seen with each subsequent spike is that the amount, the increase in uh, three months in the supply that's moving less than three months has declined. So people are basically ignoring the spikes as much and, and they're just sitting on their Bitcoin. And at the same time, you're seeing, you know, basically near one year lows of Bitcoin on exchanges, which is, which is really great to see because, you know, the only reason you'd really move it there is to, to trade. And some other interesting ones are you can track um, basically the amount of whales that exist. And so if you, you track that over time, you can really see how whales accumulate. So basically a whale being an entity that holds at least a thousand Bitcoin. And so you'll see the quantity of those guys increase as price really falls off and then decrease as, as price uh, picks up as they're kind of cashing out, basically. And it, it's, it's another way of just looking at like smart money, basically. And what you've seen right now is that number keeps growing in the sense that the quantity of whales has continued to pick up. And so realistically, that's what you want to see. If you think about like the most bullish case for Bitcoin, you'd want price running right now on the least amount of outside demand possible, because that just means that that has yet to be satisfied. And so I think that's what we're really seeing where the existing user base is really dug in. People are trading bits here and there to try and scalp more, but there's not that much that's people are, are kind of numb to price changes and they're just waiting for the next leg up. I think, um, and so I think we're at, we're at a situation where the amount of new demand really needed to move price up is at, or, or near like all-time lows. And, and so I think, you know, combining that with the macro environment, the, the fact that you're seeing institutional investors warm up to it and like the whole idea of um, the, the reduced career risk associated with it and, and, and all of those ideas. Um, yeah, I think it, I think Bitcoin, uh, DeFi affects Bitcoin on, on micro timeframes, but on a larger time scale, it, Bitcoin is just so much bigger that I think both can, can definitely do well. And, and the idea with DeFi is that as people get into Bitcoin, if even a small subset of them kind of make their way down the, uh, the rabbit hole, um, that can be a huge boon for that space. So all these people keep tweeting at me, alt season. When alt season, sir? Uh, that's basically what you're talking about here. 
what is likely to happen? Kind of how do you look at that? Yeah, um, no, it's, uh, it's a good question. So I think each time we'll see Bitcoin run up, it's, it's fair to assume alts will pull back in terms of like sats. And, and so part of, part of the reason that exists is a lot of these pairs only really tr- like now that they trade on versus like, so a lot of these bigger alts, they trade versus dollar and versus um, Bitcoin. And so when they trade versus Bitcoin, as Bitcoin moved up, they would, it, it would be less likely that, let me rephrase that. So as what now they have a dollar pair and there's a lot of volume there, they can be more appropriately priced in the dollar. So when Bitcoin runs up, they don't necessarily have to pull back as much because they can sit flat versus the dollar. They'll decline versus Bitcoin, but you don't really see a massive decline there or to the same extent. I still think um, alts really need Bitcoin to be quiet for some time to, to do well. I think um, certain catalysts for individual projects can be strong enough to offset a strong Bitcoin move. But um, in, in the end, in aggregate, alts kind of need really um, muted volatility out of Bitcoin to, to get enough um, to get people comfortable enough and bored enough to start dabbling in them again. And, and so, yeah. And, and so if Bitcoin rips, you know, between now and the end of 2021, like I think a lot of people, including myself think, uh, does that positive or negative for the alts? Um, I think for the majority of them, it'll probably be negative, but I, uh, and that's, uh, I think because of the fact that a lot of them don't really have any fundamental value and, and that's fair. I think with DeFi, the, the reason it, it has some is because there's immediate product market fit where you're just enabling speculation, you're enabling borrowing lending. And, and like, that's pretty much the biggest use case for crypto right now is speculation. And so if you can enable that with a project in a unique way, then you do have immediate product market fit. And so that's kind of, you know, what we also look for is, is understanding which projects, um, don't require the crypto user base to expand massively in order to be successful. And, and so that, I think that removes a lot of execution risk from our investment strategy and, and helps us on that front. But I think, you know, a, a lot of vaults that, that don't have re, uh, material adoption where the, the use case doesn't really um, justify the current price will definitely suffer, you know, with, with massive Bitcoin upside, but uh, what you'll end up seeing is basically the alts, Bitcoin will rip, alts will kind of st- stay flat or come down a little bit against, they'll stay f- flattish against the dollar, come down a little bit in, in, and come down in, in terms of sats. And then Bitcoin pauses and then money floods back in. And, and the idea there being that Bitcoin pulling back, you know, 1% means that alts can really, because that's a lot of capital leaving Bitcoin flooding into alts and not that much is required to make these alts move up. And so, You'll, you'll basically kind of start to see people performing that trade to an extent. But I think with DeFi, it's a little different where now that there is some actual cash flow associated with these projects, it's not as momentum driven and, there, and there's more fundamentals associated with it. And so what is, like, how does this play into the token economics and the value accrual work that you guys do, right? So people come to you and they basically say, hey, I want help with this stuff. Um, I think that Bitcoin is well understood kind of off on its own and, and strong and, and not really going to change at all. Uh, when these other people come to you and they say, hey, we want help with the token economics or the value accrual, like what do you guys spend time talking to them about? How do you actually construct that? Um, and maybe give me an example or something. Yeah. So it, um, it, it can really vary. Um, if, it, if it's a live project, it's a, you're you're a little bit more boxed in depending on kind of how far along they are and, and what's going on there but um with with a completely new project you you kind of have you know a clean slate to work with and the idea that the thought process we go with is you need to understand exactly all the users in your ecosystem um what their in- individual incentives are and then what is needed to bring additional users to the system and so we just kind of think about it on a on a micro level in terms of what are the individual, how are these individual users going to act based on what is rational for them? And so um, I think one that we designed from, we actually, uh, it was originally a consulting engagement with Axie Infinity, it's a gaming project. And then um, over time, 
uh, so we initially kind of designed the the token and work with them on that. And then they were launching and we had the ability, you know, the timing worked out where we were also able to invest. And uh, so in, in this situation, the, basically the game already exists. They have, they have a user base and in, in layman's terms, the games, it's, you can think of it as, as, as Pokemon that are battling each other, but the, the monsters you have themselves are NFTs. So um, non-fungible tokens that you own. So you can buy and sell these, these creatures, you can breed them and, and they all have a lot of characteristics, um, have a lot of um, advantages, disadvantages. And so there's a lot of strategy involved. And the idea there is it's not insanely complicated from a smart contract perspective because the game itself doesn't need, doesn't run on smart contracts. When you and I battle, it doesn't, it doesn't have to register to the blockchain. It's only when we update stats or, or buy and sell these NFTs that, that they hit the blockchain. So from that perspective, it's not as dependent on that. Um, what we basically designed was a token that the goal was, all right, how do we reward existing users, keep them sticky, but also provide a lot of incentives for new users to come into play. And so um, on one end, we, we structured, we added a token aspect that basically rewards new users for playing. If you play a certain amount of games a week, you, you receive a certain amount of tokens. The other reward is if you play a certain amount of games and you stake the tokens, you can receive a certain amount of rewards from this centralized pool of assets. All in-game spend goes, so if, if you and I if, if I, if I buy something from you and uh, a certain percentage of that just goes into this pool. So none of the value accrues to the company. Every time there's in-game spend, you wanna buy an item, wanna do anything, it goes to this pool. And the idea is you can leverage this pool and, and so what we've instituted is this, this, this pool will, will eventually be a DAO that the token holders can govern. But the idea is if you're, you're much more likely to spend a couple hundred dollars in this game knowing I can just sell these later on and, and recoup potentially more, of, more than I paid just because you know, the expansion of the game relative to a game like Fortnite where I paid 50 bucks on some aesthetic gear and it's stuck. And so the, the fluidity of that value, I think, enables a lot more in-game spend because it's not a sunk cost. And what we're trying to do is, is further encourage that with the idea that the fees aren't going to the company. So now it, it's all going to this pool with the goal of redistributing it to users based on incentives and how can we leverage this pool to, to, to create, uh, to basically grow the game. And so, Within the pool, there was a lot of you know individual um, dynamics where we we built in a score that you'd get for holding a certain amount of tokens, and then the score would enter you into a lottery that you could win a prize, and and so you kind of create a lot of these supply sinks that um, that actually provide value to the users, and at the same time, so the only way you can get access to these individual prizes is by buying and staking tokens. The only way you can get these tokens are by playing or by buying them in the open market, and so. Like there's, there's a lot of value in, in having these tokens and it kind of makes you part of the game and kind of um, distributes the value to the users and, and encourages them to actively participate, to, to figure out how to leverage this pool to, to drive more users. And so it's one of these situations where uh, decentralization isn't, is, is definitely a spectrum. And I think the further out you go, the harder it gets, especially to kind of to, 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 to direct a ship and so with, with this structure, the centralized aspect is still the game maker and, and they're building all these products and, and you want them incentivized because they need to keep expanding with the game. But at the same time, the value accrual and, and where all the capital flows goes to everyone. And so these kind of structures that, that can be um, sustainable for a long period of time and, and the goal is, you know, we'll have those rewards that'll last for years, but over time, the, the rewards should be a function of just redistribution from the pool to new users. And that way, the kind of game, the game keeps expanding. And, and that was the incentive, uh, the incentive model we kind of built there. And one other one that I want to talk about, because uh, pretty much everyone at Delphi won't leave me alone about it. My partner, Jason, literally texts me like once a week about it, is uh, Thorchain and Rune, right? I think are the two names. Yeah. What the, what the hell is this? <laughs> so Thorchain is the name, Rune is the token. Um, so the idea there who came, is... Who came up? Did you guys come up with the name or did they no, come up no. with the name? No, it's, uh, the, right. the, the, the team is big fans of Norse mythology. And so... Uh, yeah, you you no. understand how ridiculous it sounds when Jason is texting me Thorchain and I'm, I can't tell if he's joking or not, but all right, go ahead. What is this? No, but we, 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 we mentioned them like, oh, we love the project. 
have you ever thought about potentially changing the name? Because you you know the, the 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 first step of every discussion we have with anyone about this project, right? It's it's, and so um, the idea there is, so liquidity pools are, so Uniswap is a liquidity pool, and and others exist now where the idea is, you know, in layman's terms, it's two assets, and the pool is is fifty percent of one asset, fifty percent of another, and if I want to buy asset A. I can I sell asset B, receive asset A, and the 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 execution I get is a function of the size of these pools. So as more people add assets to these pools, I can trade in and out of those two pairs with less slippage. And in return, I pay a fee, and the fee accrues to the pool. So the users who provide their liquidity get a fee. And so this isn't the idea of you have idle assets. Now you can generate some kind of a yield on them by providing a service to somebody else. And this is kind of how you, you move out of the, the centralized exchange space. Um, Uniswap was primarily focused on Ethereum, whereas the idea with ThorChain is, the, uh, all right, so even taking a step back, one of the bigger issues with, with DeFi and Bitcoin is it's very hard to bring native Bitcoin to DeFi because native Bitcoin exists on its own blockchain. And with DeFi, you either there's wrap situations where somebody now has custody of the original Bitcoin and you have like a wrap Bitcoin and the whole idea with wrap Bitcoin or all these like um, um, comparisons are that you wrap it in something that makes it ERC 20 like ERC 20 assets. So it's much more compatible with the, within the Ethereum ecosystem. And it still has the same um, economic res representation of an original Bitcoin. Um, but the idea there, then you have to create incentive structure for the people that are protecting the, the original portion. And so, it adds a layer of fees. What ThorChain is trying to do is all assets will effectively stay on their native chains. Um, what they are, they, they, what, what happens is they go into wallets that are controlled by nodes. And so these nodes are run by users who hold Rune token and you have to stake a certain amount of this token. And in return, you operate a node and you're basically what's securing the assets in these products. And then for the individuals who want to provide liquidity, now I can take my asset, so whether it be Bitcoin, and I can place it in this liquidity pool. I, it's still native Bitcoin, and in return, I can generate a yield on these products. The one of the unique things that they do, I guess, is so each each pool is is Rune and Rune and whatever other asset. And what what helps there is since the liquidity is a function of the size of the pool, if you fractionalize the pools into a lot of smaller pairs you hurt like so if you had you know if, if there were if eth was in a few different pools i would get worse execution on that eth relative to it just being in one large pool and so by by establishing a common asset that's in every pool which is rune I, if i wanted to trade bitcoin for eth basically i take my bitcoin i sell it what it goes into the bitcoin rune pool and then rune sells into the other rune pool for ethereum and like out comes eth and the idea that the, the, the way that they're kind of building that is now so you have a lot of individuals, a lot of idle assets, and now I can actually generate a yield on them that I wouldn't really be able to do elsewhere. And the way that the token comes into play is it's, it's used to secure the platform. Um, it's used as the counterpart to every um, liquidity pool. And at the same time, they have a subset of it that's, that's set aside for issuance basically to reward users for placing their assets in the pool. So the way that this, this project actually works is you need enough liquidity to be put into these pools so that the execution becomes comparable, but it's tough for people to provide liquidity initially because if no one's trading on it, then I don't really want to provide liquidity because I'm not going to get any fees. So that, that's like the kind of the bootstrapping mechanism where, okay, if you provide liquidity, we'll pay you an extra tokens. And so now everyone's going to kind of come in and flood and place the, their assets into these pools because they can earn yield on otherwise idle assets, which would ideally create enough um, depth where transactions can actually be competitive with other venues. And then as you bring in more users, then the fees kind of go up because they just accrue as a function of volume and, and then more users kind of bring in. And that's kind of the positive reflexivity that, that they're hoping to achieve. I'm gonna stick with my Bitcoin, but at least I understand it now. <laughs> Don't I mean, blame you. And, and and look, I, I think you know before we go to finish up, like a lot of what's happening in DeFi and with the token economics and a lot and a lot of this stuff is trying to recreate. You said at the beginning, right? Like recreate what already happens in the legacy finance world, but do it without a centralized authority, uh, with more transparency, with more automation. 
right? With, with a different kind of ownership con- um, uh, structure. And so this is really just kind of recreating things that already exist, but just in a new kind of souped up, you know, improved digital version, right? Yeah. And the value accruing to users that are providing the other end of the, of the product versus the centralized entity. That's just, that's a company basically. Yeah. I mean like, you know, from a high level, just like that as a thesis, like that makes a lot of sense. I think the big question is, you know, obviously which ones are going to be successful first? What's the timing? You know, what do the legacy players do in response? Like, like there's so many moving parts here, but I think just at, at a high level, that thesis of like, Hey, there's uh, kind of like analog or very bureaucratic and centralized existing examples in the legacy finance system. They're super profitable businesses that are very powerful. Uh, if you can disrupt them with decentralized digital versions of their own business and help the market participants accrue value, like that should be a valuable thing and people would want to use it. And, you know, so I think it generally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea is you, you, you have some existing users that already want to speculate and, and kind of participate and, and it, it achieves product market fit a lot easier. So it's, it's kind of that, that whole reduction of execution risk in terms Make, of an investment. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I asked the same two questions to wrap up. Favorite book or most important book, what is it? Oh. Most important book. That's tough. Let me think about that. And uh, what's, what's the other one? Aliens, believer or non-believer? Definitely a believer. Why? I think there's just, uh, especially this year, I mean, if it wasn't for COVID, there's so much evidence that's kind of come out and, and been uh, swept under the rug that's, uh, that's, that's um, been huge for us. Like, I think if, yeah, if COVID wasn't around, people would be losing their mind, but there's just too much other shit going on that, that people don't even realize that there's, you know, videos. I'm waiting for Trump to drop it in an interview by accident. Like, just be like, oh, yeah, the alien. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, and like, just literally accidentally drop the fact that there's aliens. Like, he, I feel like he's the president. If anyone's going to accidentally let that information out, it's him. Yeah. Or through a tweet when he's on Ambien or something, accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> he literally might just tweet and say, confirmed video and just leak it himself, right? Like, so, something crazy. All right. What book yeah. you got for us? And then, yeah, book. Um, just because it's, it's very timely now. Um, so uh, Anil, uh, CEO, has been, uh, and, and Kev, they both read, it's a book called Traction. And uh, they've used that to really kind of help shape how um, the company has been developing. And, and I think, you know, they, they really read it about like two or three months ago. And um, we've definitely been making a lot of internal changes just to optimize and, and really uh, like, uh, create efficient processes and, and really build the company in a way that's, that's scalable and making sure that everyone kind of is directionally aware of, of what we want to do. And so I think, yeah, that, that's probably the most important book for us right now. If I had to pick. I never heard of that one. I have to read that. Uh, you could ask me one question. What you got for me? Um, Who's been your least favorite pot? No, no. <laughs> uh, uh, <yeah. laughs> uh, who, do, who do you think you've learned the most from? What, what guest do you think you've learned the most from? That would have been an epic question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot there. <laughs> I don't even know who it would be. I have to actually think about that. Um, who have I learned the most from? I can't pick one person. Uh, pe- people off the top of my head. Um, you know, there's all like the the well-known people that everyone would assume, like the you know the Chamas, the Raul Pauls, the Cat Coles, all, all those types of people. Um, I think that uh, somebody who was uh, really interesting uh, was Ben Mesrick. Uh, so he wrote Bitcoin Billionaires. He also did um, Social Network a movie, um, and uh, has written like 25 books or something. He wrote a book about aliens, like all kinds of stuff. Uh, but he was fascinating to talk to because he basically just flipped the publishing world on its head. So what he does is he basically writes a manuscript. He then goes sells the book rights or uh, sells the movie rights. And once the movie rights are bought, then he writes the actual book. So he goes like complete reverse. Um, and then he also was like super uh, forthcoming and transparent about like what he got right and wrong in the social network and, and that whole story and then why he did the Bitcoin billionaire book and I don't know. He was just like the most, like, or one of the most fascinating people I think that I've had on, which is probably not the one that people would assume for me to pick. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll definitely check that one out. Yeah, it was great. Um, all right, where can people find you and where, where can they find out more about Delphi? Yeah, so our website is www.delphidigital.io and you can find me on Twitter at Jan Lieberman.
DelphiDigital.io. Who, whose yep. idea was it to use the IO? Well, .com was taken at the time. We're actually in conversations trying to buy it. <laughs> Somebody you had it from a while back. You, you can't tell people that. Jason Calcanis is the one who told me this. He goes, no, dude, I never talk about URLs I'm trying to buy on the podcast because everyone's going to go and bid it up. <laughs> we can uh, delete that. <laughs> yeah, we'll just cut that part out, guys. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. I'll do it again in the future. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure.